G'day and welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. Today we're going to take a look at a rather astonishing military engagement that occurred on our home soil in the early 20th century. While perhaps not a pivotal part of our history, it's certainly something to reflect on when we consider the kind of decisions we make when under pressure. (laughs) Know your enemy might be a start. As Pobji wrote in Era Australis, quote, If the Great Emu War wasn't the most brutal war the country ever fought in, it was, at the very least, the most hilarious. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to exploring this ill-fated military campaign with you today. Before we begin, some folks have asked me how long it takes to put each show together. I tried to note the time I spent on last month's final Eureka episode, so let me just share that with you before we get stuck in. As avid podcast listeners will know, podcasters are continually begging their listeners for good reviews and help in spreading the word about our shows. For those of us undertaking our podcast as a labour of love, with no commercial financial support, we are also keen to encourage those who are able to donate in return for the enjoyment experienced in listening to our work. Patrons and occasional donators contribute to the costs of our web presence and the research materials. A small number of successful podcasters even have enough patrons to help fund some of their time. And while I dream of that, I know a clunky little Aussie show like mine won't reach those heady heights. But at the time of recording, I do have five generous and encouraging patrons who give up a coffee or two each month in order to support my work on the Australian Histories podcast. So I wanted to thank personally R. Scott, Stephen, Rob C., Michelle G., and Peter M., You have almost all been with me right from the start, contributing via my Patreon account, and your support has encouraged me to continue even when the time commitment required has almost brought me to a halt, so I'm very grateful. If you'd like to join them in sponsoring the show or make a one-off donation, please check the donation links available on the Australian Histories podcast webpage. Now, that last episode in the Eureka series ran for one hour, and by the way, I'm really trying to work harder at reining those into the desired 45 minutes from now on. We'll see how we go today. (laughs) So for a show of that length, here's a rough guide of my time spent. The script I recorded for that program ended up at 13,000 words. I spent at least 35 hours writing and editing, Normally, I would add more hours for reading and note-taking first, but for Eureka, I'd done all that while working on the earlier episodes. Then I spent about two hours to record, and a further three to edit and listen to the final result for errors, (laughs) ensuring that I edit out my colourful swearing, if it's been a difficult one to record. I load up the file onto Podbean with an image and an episode description, and then I spend an hour or so creating the Australian Histories Podcast episode webpage with its images and the compiled reference list and links. Then I create notifications to mail out to all my patrons and for those who have subscribed to the Australian Histories Podcast newsletter. And finally, I spend a little more time drafting brief release notices for Facebook, Twitter and Insta. Those notices get the word out about the new episode and will hopefully be shared further on listeners' social networks, growing our listening audience and making all the time spent worthwhile and the podcast well used. So that's over 40 hours for that last episode, not including the reading and note-taking. A new topic like today's requires the reference searching, reading and note-taking first. Phew. When the episode's ready for release, I pour a giant gin and tonic and take a deep breath. When sufficiently relaxed, and if all's going well, in the next few days I collect the library books for return, tidy the desk, do an outline for the next idea, 
rinse and repeat. <laughs> so thanks for your query, folks. Now, back to the said podcast. Before we look at this particular military action, we might just look at Australians and war in general for a moment. No doubt the first Australians would have engaged in warfare of some sort between the clans from time to time across the tens of thousands of years they inhabited Australia, and then from the beginning of European colonisation, frontier confrontations of various intensity took place as the government and free settlers moved out across the land. These frontier wars were fought by both the British militia, sent out with the First Fleet onwards, and by the settlers laying claim to Indigenous lands. This is such a big story, and one that we have really only begun to explore and acknowledge in recent decades, that it deserves an episode of its own in the future. As the British colonies consolidated, any military forces were, for many years, considered part of the British military, as we've heard mentioned in the Eureka episodes, but by the 1870s, each of the colonies were taking more responsibility for forming and managing their own colonial military forces, even if still with substantial oversight from the colonial office in London. By 1901, when Australia drew its far-flung colonies together into a federation, responsibility for defence then rested squarely with the newly federated country. The Australian Commonwealth military forces came into being on March 1st, 1901. In both the late 19th and early 20th centuries, though, troops from Australia were sent to bolster British forces in various military campaigns, including the Sudan War, the Boer War and the Boxer Rebellion. But it was the First World War, post-Federation, which arguably gave us our image of the Australian soldier. The Aussie digger, those soldiers in particular defining what would become the Anzac spirit shared with our Kiwi brothers, and defined by... Quote, endurance, courage, ingenuity, humour, larrikinism, egalitarianism and mateship, unquote. It seems like the Aussie diggers soldiers possibly carried on the ethos from the diggers that we talked about in the Eureka episode. Australian military men and women were certainly brave and quite prepared to put themselves into harm's way for Queen or King and Country, known for fighting valiantly against all odds and maintaining good spirits in the main. But the unfortunate thing is, they were pretty much put into situations that they just could not definitively win. Gallipoli or the Somme being examples. Though I guess we can claim World War I as an overall military victory. Fortunately, after that war was over, the government released acreage to be offered to those returning World War I soldiers if they desired to settle on the land and farm. They had done their duty and more than 5,000 returned servicemen, including some ex-British army veterans, took up that opportunity. One of the areas opened up to soldier settlers was the area we now refer to as the Wheat Belt of Western Australia. So let's have a good look at exactly what went on over in Western Australia that drew those soldier settlers into a new war with the formidable wildlife there. The Australian government had released land to settlers in various places and at various times in the past, and it had not always been a success. Making a living from farming is hard. If you listen to the Kelly series, you might recall the problems those in the northeast of Victoria had trying to make a living off two small holdings, with the required agricultural expectations attached to their leases 
often not suitable for the land and water allocated, or for the settlers' skills. Historian Murray Johnson, whose work I'm relying on heavily for this episode, noted that these post-First World War settlements also had similar problems and failure rates, though not the bushranging and Kelly outbreaks as far as I'm aware at this time, and their poor success rate was not helped by the looming economic depression that arrived at the end of the 1920s. At least this time, in Western Australia, they had allocated much larger, more viably sized lots. But of course, by the early 1900s, most of the attractive farming land had already been taken up. So a good percentage of the soldier settler holdings were on land at the marginal edges of the settled areas. Still, many did make a small living with mixed holdings, feeding their families. While there were several optimistically good seasons in the 1920s, things turned sour towards the end of the decade, and by 1929, around 30% had abandoned their holdings. Many, encouraged by the government to assist in securing homegrown crops for Australia, had embarked on large-scale wheat production, though right from the start it was a challenge, some crops being intermittently overrun by rabbits or being decimated by severe winter frosts. When the depression took hold and the commodity prices dropped, the success of their farms seemed even more precarious. The Europeans had brought some of this trouble with them, of course, such as the rabbits, who in the mild conditions in Australia were able to breed, well, you know, <laughs> like rabbits, all year round. And there were feral camels, goats and wild pigs and the like. Pushing agricultural land further out into the native bush also put them at predictable risk of conflict with the native animals already there too. So conflict is where our story today will be going. You can listen to episode number 28 for a little background on how they settled on managing the rabbit problem and in keeping dingoes from their stock by building the massive dingo and rabbit-proof fences. But it was not easy for these new farmers, competing with the animals already in those ecological spaces. And just to add to the degree of difficulty, the areas allocated generally had pretty poor soil and often unreliable rainfall. As I said before, some areas did perform well in good years, but lots of places were pretty marginal, and Johnson reports that farmers were usually operating on the edge of success. As the Depression arrived in the late 1920s, the Scullin government promoted even more wheat growing, encouraging the farmers to further expand their acreage under crop by offering subsidies and guaranteeing a generous fixed price for the resulting wheat. So many soldier settler farmers answered the call, massively increasing their potential crop size. Still doing battle with the rabbits, the native emu was now proving to be a problem too. The bird had been protected since 1874, but in becoming an increasing problem for the wheat farmers, it was by 1922 listed as vermin so that they could cull them on their land. Some of the rabbit-proof fences were reinforced and were then known as the emu fence. Birds found inside the fence could be killed and the beaks would attract a bounty. Sources note that for late in 1928, Three to 4,000 emus were destroyed in just one district. But the birds, being migratory, were coming in waves, and those numbers culled didn't seem to put a dent in the populations at all. It was also noted at the time where the fences were in good repair that many were dying at the fences, unable to get to water on the farms and running themselves along the barriers to exhaustion, one imagines. When conditions were tough in the interior, perhaps greater numbers would have been expected to head towards the farms. So the farmers were under the pump, 
With the government offering a fixed income, they placed all their money on cultivating large wheat crops. Unfortunately, by the time the promised guaranteed wheat funding bill reached Parliament in June of 1930, world wheat prices had collapsed, and with a hostile opposition in place, the government bill failed to pass. The farmers, having spent their advance on increasing the crop size, now had little chance to gain a healthy income from their efforts, the return instead likely to be only half of what was expected. It was very unfortunate for the farmers, as, amazingly, 1930 had been a bumper crop. The best harvest we had, according to one grower, Albert Facey. They struggled on, though most were now facing financial difficulties, and there was a lot of lobbying, complaint and agitation. Many growers threatened to withhold the stored grain from sale altogether until a better price was offered. Despite a change in government, the promised funds were still not being paid. It was a difficult few years in farmer-government relations. By 1932, with crops approaching harvest around October, the poor beleaguered farmers came under attack on a new front. Now the native emu, a frequent nuisance in years past, was this year coming into some of the wheat-growing areas in the tens of thousands, numbers too large for individual farmers to control. They could see their crop whether destined for sale or stored as a bargaining chip with the government, being potentially annihilated by these birds and becoming useless to them either way. An alarming prospect. In the campion walgulan district, around 300 kilometres northeast of Perth, huge flocks of emus, reportedly up to 20,000 in number, were coming in from the outback, making for the dams and both eating and trampling the almost ready wheat. Now even their marginal crop income was under threat from these crazy birds. They would need serious help, and indeed they did convince the government to come to their rescue, or at least it must have seemed like it would be a rescue when the decision was made. It's worth noting, before we continue on the next phase of the story, that of all the many magnificent and bizarre animals we could have chosen, it's the emu which joins the kangaroo as the heraldic emblems of our national coat of arms though I think it would be fair to say the emu might not be held in the same respect and esteem as the kangaroo. <laughs> not quite as gracious or cute enough for muster, perhaps. Pobji said, quote, The emu is the embodiment of Australian people's psychotic aggression and terrifying insane eyes, unquote. <laughs> and I'm leaning towards agreement there. Mind you, they have done a good job to make the gangly, slightly crazed-looking emu look pretty regal on the coat of arms, really. Libby Robin notes that the kangaroo emu emblem was in fact ripped off from a design created for Hobart Town in 1804, though the Tasmanian emu it would have been modelled on, a separate species from the mainland variety, and then the largest bird on the island, is now extinct. She says in 1901 this coat of arms was selected to represent the national economy and a nation that has pastoralism at its core. But it turned out these animals were not entirely compatible with the smooth running of a pastoral ideal, as we're about to find out. Emus are huge, nomadic, and no respecter of fences. They prefer open grassland with scattered tree cover, the very landscape created by the ancient Aboriginal land management practices across the country. Now fences and crops were to be added to the landscape. Well, that was a problem, or perhaps a challenge, for the roving emu. Robin describes both emblematic animals as roaming opportunists who can very quickly adapt to boom times and migrate vast distances in bust seasons. 
and she reminds us that Australia's interior is a highly unpredictable environment with irregular rain and fire, making nomadism a sensible survival strategy for many creatures, including the emu. Habitat loss and restriction of movement will mean adjustments and adaption over time, but in the short term, the arrival of wheat and the new dams on the farms must have seemed an attractive refuge for the emus moving west from the sparse interior. Emu populations could appear suddenly and expand rapidly where resources were abundant. While their range covers most of Australia, outside the tropical rainforest areas, they need some cover to breed, and so it can seem absent from a cleared farmland for much of the time. But if conditions change, they can roam more widely into areas of more abundance after breeding, and individual birds have been known to range over 800 kilometres. Studies note that while they're generally territorial and happy to remain dispersed rather than flock together, they do often travel and forage in groups of 20 to more than 500, particularly in times of scarcity. While they don't generally waste energy relocating if they have no need, they will respond quickly to change in the environment, such as a sudden natural abundance appearing, or, in the case of newly developed wheat farms in Western Australia, to an unexpected man-made bounty of food and water. Robin estimated the 1932 wheat crop attracted about 20,000 emus in an area covering about 40 square miles. Not a particularly good-looking bird, indeed its face is rather startling and mean-looking, on top of that snake-like neck, the adult can reach 1.9 metres tall. Only the ostrich might be taller of the living birds today. Completely flightless, its small vestigial wings are almost invisible under its fabulously fluffy feathered torso. <laughs> Guess how many takes recording those words took. <laughs> With massive feet and muscular legs, it has a running stride of 3 metres and can move at speeds of up to 50 kilometres an hour or around 30 miles per hour, giving it a reputation for being fast and difficult to catch. Its lovely, fine, fluffy grey-brown feathers were actually used by the Australian Mounted Infantry in World War I to symbolise their riding agility and competence. And you might see the emu's feathers on the hats of the Australian Light Horse Brigade. The emu, of course, has cultural significance for the Aboriginal people and is an important totem for some, with many Dreamtime stories about the emu across Australia. It is also a very important figure in the night sky of the Southern Hemisphere. The shape of a dark emu in the Milky Way, when it reaches a particular point, indicates movement in the seasons for the indigenous, heralding various hunting or other food-gathering practices too. With my untrained eye, I think I have been able to pick out the dark emu shape in the Milky Way on a good night. It's a fantastic way to challenge your visualisation of the night sky, if, like myself, your previous experience has been based only on the Western approach, trying to pick out constellations and stars such as the Southern Cross. There are a few fantastic web pages which explain this indigenous perspective and the ancient knowledge very well. To quote the ABC Science page, unlike Greek celestial tradition, which focuses almost exclusively on stars, Aboriginal astronomy focuses on the Milky Way and often incorporates the dark patches between stars, unquote. I'll place some links in the reading list to that page and to other research into Aboriginal astronomy. And if you don't already know what the emu looks like running, it might be worth looking that up too, just to get an idea of what the scenes we're about to discuss would have looked like. Before we move on, here's a couple of other interesting facts that Robin records in her chapter in the book Boom and Bust, Bird Stories for a Dry Country. 
Emus are ratites like rheas and ostriches, and also like the adorable little kiwi over the ditch, which it resembles not a bit, except for the lack of viable wings, and maybe the shape of the feathers a little. Emus show evolutionary lineages back to the era of Gondwana, so it's an ancient and evolutionarily successful creature. Emus can be monogamous or promiscuous, depending on the environment and the circumstances. And interestingly, it is the male that primarily cares for the young. Like many Australian animals, being opportunistic in relation to our rather challenging environment, they can breed all year, but generally breeding takes place over the winter. They'll eat pretty much anything. Fruit, seeds, grass shoots, shrubs and insects. Again, probably simply related to what's available in the environment at the time. So they're extremely adaptable to seasonal change, described as the classic boom and bust species. The first Australians would have managed the emu as a reliable source of food, like the kangaroo, as it adapted well to the changing landscape after their arrival. And of course the Europeans looked to its suitability as a food source too. First Fleeter and diarist Watkin Tench recorded its flesh as tasting like beef. But of course, like kangaroos, they are not animals that can be herded or farmed, and they proved to be very difficult to catch and kill. Tench wrote that the emus were, quote, so wild as to make shooting them a matter of great difficulty, unquote, as we're about to be reminded. And so, they never really became a common staple in the diet of the European settlers. While stronger rabbit-proof fences did assist in containing the emus, where they were in good condition, Johnson notes that high post-war tariffs had meant that quality wire was difficult and expensive to get, and reinforcing regional stretches or building more local fencing was not always an option at the time. Remember from episode 28 on the dingo fence that even today, the fence repairers would talk of emus running straight at the fence, full speed, occasionally with such force that it knocked it down, or knocked them out. Is it bad eyesight? Or do they just have no idea, not seeing the fence as a solid object? Or is it they just don't care? Crash or crash through, they say. Whatever it is, they can be pretty hard on the fencing. So with these stupid birds coming in and bowling down the fences, the farmers then also had the double whammy of the rabbits now getting in as well. By 1932, the fences were increasingly ineffectual, and with the massive numbers of emu on their migration west stomping right through the soon-to-be-ripe crops, a deputation of soldier settlers from the affected regions began lobbying hard for a government response to the evil emu invasion. And what was the solution suggested by World War I soldier settler farmers? Bring in the military! Still the go-to answer for many a crisis in Australia, even if not entirely appropriate. The farmers would provide food and accommodation for the personnel and pay for the ammunition, while the state government of Western Australia would fund the transport of the troops and their equipment to the affected areas, so it would not cost the Commonwealth government much at all. The locals would agree to aid and be commanded by the military personnel in the campaign, but the machine guns would only be operated by the trained military officers. Unbelievably, the Commonwealth Minister for Defence, Sir George Pearce, thought it was a sterling idea, committing the troops and publicly declaring an emu war in the West. Not only could the emu pest be eradicated, but his gunners could get some valuable live target practice. A chance to, quote, test out the guns against rapidly moving targets, unquote. Oh, God help the emu. Maybe machine guns did seem like the perfect answer. 
There were thousands of birds, and they needed something that could slay them quickly and efficiently before the birds retreated. So the 7th Heavy Battery of the Royal Australian Artillery were given the job of conducting the Great Emu War. Major G.P.W. Meredith in command, Sergeant McMurray and Gunner O'Halloran would travel to the region with two Lewis machine guns and 10,000 rounds of ammunition. They'd rescue the wheat farmers from the evil emu scourge and grab a new supply of feathers for the military hats while they were at it. <laughs> in yet one more bizarre twist, someone, possibly Pierce, somehow thought it appropriate to send along a Fox Movie Tone cinematographer to record the progress of the emu war, footage of which would be played in the Movie Tone news at the cinemas across the country. Our brave lads vanquishing the fierce, though unarmed, avian foe, beleaguering our valiant farmers, or something like that anyway. Emu slaughter as family fair at the cinemas, apparently. Obviously, the decision-makers had no idea what an emu was and how fondly the East Coast latte sippers felt about their national emblem. Johnson suggested that the new government might have thought the footage of military assistance provided to the struggling wheat growers would make positive government propaganda. Look what we're doing to support our farmers. But the imagery was not to meet with the response they might have anticipated. After consulting with the West Australian Department of Agriculture, the first assault on the Emu War was to take place in October. But really, is no one jumping up and down yet at this bizarre turn of events? Certainly there'd been a lot of talking and taunting in the Parliament and the papers. There were many who suggested it was a farce in the making, but in the West, the soldier settlers were eagerly anticipating a quick rout of the troublesome enemy, and they couldn't wait for the action to begin. As it turned out, unexpected rain came in October, and the birds headed back inland, but their retreat was temporary. Soon they were on the march west again later in the month, and Meredith and his men were sent in, arriving in Barakopan on November 2nd, ready for action. On arrival, there were some 50 emus in the area, though this flock were outside of the gun range where they had set up. So they had the locals drive the emus along the number one rabbit-proof fence towards the guns. As Robin records, quote, Alas for the settlers and the honour of the army, the birds knew how to split into small parties and ran zigzagging across the country, completely foiling the stationary and inflexible ambush, unquote. Now, according to a wiki entry, the Lewis gun has a firing rate of five to 600 rounds per minute and operated from a stationary, most likely prone position, it has an effective firing range of 880 yards, so that's sort of close to 800 metres. But they did manage to hit a few in the chaos. Johnson records that the first burst of fire completely fell short, but the second burst, quote, striking the birds just as they reached cover, First blood in the bizarre emu war had thus been drawn by the Australian army, unquote. But it wasn't a spectacular outcome, really. Even a pea-brained bird knows to run away from a loud noise. And as any driver in the outback knows, there is never any sensible pattern to the dispersal of a native animal in fright. The birds would scatter in all directions, not allowing the stationary machine gun to do its worst. Unlike the success it may have achieved shooting poor soldiers forced out of the trenches and running straight towards the guns in the previous war, the old soldiers may have had indelible memories of their lethality in these circumstances, but the casualties of the canny emu were much fewer than they might have first imagined. 
Moving on to a nearby property, they managed to surprise and fell another dozen or so birds, but with disappointing results, they were already beginning to reassess their tactics. Day two was all quiet on the wheat belt front. Originally thinking they would have no trouble mowing down any large flocks of birds in open country, they regrouped, considering that setting up around water sources would be a better tactic, expecting to get close enough to smaller groups in that circumstance to do more damage, perhaps. So on the 4th, they concealed themselves behind a tall damn wall and waited. As luck would have it, a huge flock of around 1,000 enemy avians made their way to virtually directly in front of the guns. <laughs> oh, hell and hope and fire. And the first burst easily took out about a dozen birds. But then the gun jammed. Oh, we can only imagine the blue language behind that wall as the startled but lucky emus took off in all directions, making for cover. Five of the soldier settlers who were assisting fired on the fleeing birds with their own rifles, but it was no easy task to hit one in the pandemonium. Despite waiting all day in place, they didn't get another chance, and they retired for the night, no doubt crestfallen. It was already looking like a farce and a disaster, and Johnson notes the press had begun ridiculing their efforts. With tongue-in-cheek, one story stated, quote, The emus had proved that they are not so stupid as they are usually considered to be. Each mob has its leader, always an enormous black-plumed bird, standing fully six feet high, who keeps watch while his fellows busy themselves with the wheat. At the first suspicious sign, he gives a signal, and dozens of heads stretch up out of the crop. A few birds will take fright, starting a headlong stampede for the scrub, the leader always remaining until his followers have reached safety." Unquote. But the valiant fighting man does not give up. Instead, Meredith relocated and opened a new front further south, where the emus were, quote, reported to be fairly tame and in large numbers, unquote. That's the way. Work to your strengths and take advantage of the enemy's weakness. But their downtime also seemed to have allowed another harebrained idea to surface. I mean, another cunning plan to come to mind. How about we mount the gun on the back of a tray truck and pursue the retreating emus? Hmm. Well, this could have been a, well, some sort of idea if they'd been chasing them on a smooth bitumen runway with all the birds running in the same straight line. But in a rough paddock at 35 miles an hour, it's a wonder they imagined any men might even stay perched on the bouncing tray at all, let alone fire a weapon with any accuracy. And of course, the birds simply randomly darted off again to the nearest cover, away from the rattling truck. Not a single shot was fired, and the idea was given up. Let us never speak of it again. Johnson reported another truck having a better kill rate, though it's all a pretty gruesome and sorry tale. Apparently, one of the farmers pursued and ran down a single bird. But in an ironic demonstration of revenge or karma, the slain bird, quote, became entangled in the steering gear, unquote, and caused the truck to career out of control, destroying, quote, a whole chain of fence before it was finally brought to a standstill. <laughs> By the 8th, one quarter of the ammo had been used. That's 2,500 rounds. And the tally of enemy destroyed was reported at 200. Oh dear. That's 10 shillings per kill for the ammo cost alone. 
Meredith later thought closer to 300 emus would have been killed, and the soldier settlers involved suggested 500, but those estimates were considered a little over-optimistic. Back in Canberra, Prime Minister Lyons was having to defend Pierce and the resulting farce. Senator Guthrie asked why some more humane ways were not found, like fencing and poisoning the birds. And it seems, yielding to that pressure, Lyons sent a telegram to the Secretary of Defence ordering the campaign to cease, much to the Secretary's relief, one imagines. Johnson notes, though, quote, While Phase 1 of the Emu War was thus brought to a prompt and inglorious end, the condemnation and witticisms continued, unquote. When one politician asked whether, quote, a medal was to be struck for those taking part in this war, unquote, another responded that any such medal should go to the emus, who, quote, have won every round so far, unquote. <laughs> but despite the mirth, there was still the grave problem faced by the soldier settler farmers, and the Western Australian Premier reminded his federal colleagues about the seriousness of the situation, noting, quote, many will lose the whole of their crops, unquote. So the government did relent, and they allowed the forces a second shot at the emus, so to speak. Interestingly, though, when they were looking for members of the military board in Canberra to sanction the resumption of action, it seems they were all mysteriously unavailable, obviously busy sorting their sock drawers or something. The Defence Secretary finally had to respond himself, noting that while it was, quote, not desirable for his military personnel to take part, he would have no objections if the state government of Western Australia borrowed the equipment and found themselves, quote, competent machine operators, unquote. Though, of course, they didn't have such men currently qualified. So Meredith et al. were once again put on the job. Meredith's report, from his experience on the ground, read, quote, the damage done by these birds has to be seen to be believed. Over large areas, the crops are completely flattened. Crops which should return six bags per acre will not now return two, unquote. In effect, this meant the loss of thousands of pounds in the regions. And he reminded them that these losses were highest in the areas where his troops had been active. But here, Johnson points out that it's possible having the gunners there actually increase the damage by causing the birds to scatter and frantically trample anything in their path every time the guns were fired. And you'd have to imagine that might indeed be so. Birds, leisurely picking their way through a crop, may well have left more wheat standing in the normal course of events. Meredith also formally reported that his own troop casualties were nil. So that made for a nice outcome at least. So they restarted the campaign in Emu Central, at Campion, on November 13th. By now, the non-wheat-growing public were becoming alarmed about the trauma the birds were experiencing. The tallies and stats were usually recorded for birds killed outright, but clearly many must have left the scene carrying numerous wounds. Meredith himself was to record, quote, The emu is an amazingly hard bird to kill outright. Many carry mortal wounds up to a distance of half a mile, unquote. And he also stated, quote, If we had a military division with the bullet-carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. They could face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. They are like Zulus, whom even dum-dum bullets would not stop, unquote. Now, that's the kind of comment that he'll be remembered for. <laughs> but he was right. They were a formidable opponent. Another bird that was run down by a farmer in his truck... That's a very disturbing tactic, by the way. Was found to have had five bullet wounds, 
quote, which had evidently been there since the first operations, unquote. So an RSPCA animal welfare officer accompanied them, and his task was to humanely euthanise injured birds. But it's unlikely it was of much help, given the numbers involved and the previously stated evidence that even mortally wounded birds frequently left the area in panic. Though there was some humour in the farce, many responded to the clear cruelty involved. Footage shown in cinemas revolted the public, Scenes of the birds fleeing from machine gun fire, while perhaps comical with the right music, was shocking when one reflected on the plight of the actual animals being killed and visibly wounded. The attempt to make this seem like a positive story in helping the farmers was becoming an action prompting outrage. At the front, birds, already a difficult target, were now more wary than ever and seemed to perpetually remain just outside the range of the guns. (laughs) Who says they're stupid, eh? And reports came of even more arriving on the wheat fields around Walgulan. So Meredith sent one of the guns south to open a second front in the hope of success and redeeming their military prestige. He noted, quote, Good work has been reported. The party is still using ambushade methods, as the emus are nearly frantic for want of water. The gunners are at last getting the upper hand over the enemy, many of which have been killed or are carrying lead. The rest, apparently considering discretion the better part of valour, are gradually sneaking off. It is hoped before long to make a final clean-up, unquote. But actually, the birds weren't leaving. They were just moving off to feed on other farms. They just could not make headway in reality, even with the local rifle club bolstering their attack. And while Meredith reported that by December 2nd, they were reducing the flock by 100 a week, When the problem was 20,000 birds, the effort seemed pointless. As Johnson wrote, There had definitely been no Wheatfield Waterloo. On the 10th, the campaign was finally called to a close. The final, rather precise and amazingly symmetrical military report noted a kill rate of one bird to 10 rounds. 986 birds for 9,860 bullets fired and they further claimed that an additional 2,500 emus perished from wounds, though there's clearly no way of reliably calculating that once injured birds have left the site. Pobji suggests, referring to Meredith's final report, that, quote, some of the most unsung heroes of Australian military history are the men who managed to read this report with straight faces. <laughs> well done. Well, unless you are a victorious emu, it must have been a pretty demoralising exercise all round. And I feel for the poor soldier settlers involved. They suffered losses or stalemates across numerous battlefields in their world war. And here they were again, beaten by the pea-brained emu, this time also suffering the humiliation of taunting from the press. But as battles go, it's all a matter of perspective. Historian Hunt prefers to describe it as one of Australia's most successful military campaigns, as there were no Australian troop casualties. And that's a good way to think of it. Soon afterwards, the triumphant, but let's face it, completely oblivious birds, retreated of their own accord back to the scrub and inland areas they generally prefer as the season moved on and the conditions changed. Still, the stinging loss did not dissuade the farmers for calling again for the gunners in 1934, 1938 and 1943, when it looked like the birds might return en masse again. But this time, wisely, the government and the military did not take the call. (laughs) 
Leading up to this period, many farmers were still withholding their wheat that the government had failed to pay for at the agreed 1929 rate. But towards the end of 1932, most began yielding and loaded it up for sale for whatever price they could get. Now many had the added debt of the ammunition they'd used in the failed war. Others refused to pay the loans back for many, many years. So all in all, it was a pretty sorry period, with many still having to leave their farms in the end. The machine guns had proven to be the wrong weapon for the task. The mighty emu had won the battle, but it would go on to lose the war. Future emu incursions were much better managed by the tried and true methods of farmers picking them off with their own rifles and bounty hunters culling them for a living, claiming the beak bounty for each kill. At a shilling a head, itinerant workers were able to make a living from the pest control. Robin records in 1935 that 57,034 bounties were paid in a period of six months. And much relief was gained from improving the fencing and the barriers to exclude the migrating birds. Even so, emu populations were still considered a problem for farmers in the regions for decades. The emu fence was still being extended into the 1950s, though by then conditions and migratory patterns may well have changed, also assisting in keeping the birds further away from the agricultural areas in such large flocks for the most part. But still, between 1945 and 1960 in Western Australia, after World War II was over and the government made ammunition free for vermin eradication, more than a quarter of a million emus were killed. Being one half of our national emblem, they now enjoy protected status, and they are not considered to be a species of concern. In Western Australia in particular, their numbers are strong, possibly similar to that era in the past, but it seems the barriers are performing better for the farmers. It is still possible for individual landowners to get permits to cull on private property if need be, but we no longer see the mass slaughter associated with those pre- and post-World War II years. So, how might we sum up the great emu war? Johnson quotes Alan Marshall saying emus had, quote, made the defence authorities look like idiots, unquote. But I don't think we can lay the responsibility for the farce on the military as such. It sounds like they might have run a mile to avoid undertaking such an action if they'd been given the chance. Instead, I think we have to blame Senator Pierce for agreeing to send in the military in a misguided endeavour, as it turns out, possibly also trying to gain some political kudos from the exercise. While a long-serving politician with an impressive resume, in this instance, he was mistaken on all accounts and hopefully experienced the censure he deserved from his colleagues and the public. But it was probably the poor soldiers involved that bore an unfair share of the mockery, having lost the very public emu war. <laughs> the things one has to do for king and country, eh? Now this month I'm going to recommend a podcast called The Historical Oracle. I love this one because it covers a wide range of topics that we all know a little about and gives you a steady and interesting insight into the subjects, covering events and interesting people worldwide, from the coffee houses of London to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Ben does a great job sharing his research and knowledge. One of my favourite episodes was about how the pub names across the UK can be deciphered to track the historical twists and turns through the centuries. Fascinating. I'm sure you'll find much of interest there. Check out the link to the Historical Oracle podcast on my Australian Histories podcast webpage. Next month, I'll try for another single episode story before maybe starting on another big one. 
You may have noticed too that I have moved the planned release date for these podcasts to the last Monday of the month rather than Friday. This will give me the weekend to polish and get the program loaded instead of pulling an all-nighter on a Thursday night. Okay, so look out for that last Monday of the month. Thanks for joining me again this month. Have a safe and happy few weeks. Talk then. Cheers. Cheers.